We don't aim to solve all the world's problems, but we do offer you peace of mind, hope, laughter, and ideas on how you can help improve circumstances and communities. Good change is for you. For us, we take to heart your concerns about anger, injustice, and helplessness, the pain that we each feel, and give you something better to witness, something better to believe in. In many ways, this podcast is the opposite of self-help. It's us help. We draw attention to kindness, to the better angels of our nature. We swap stories that bring smiles, deep breaths, inspiration, and ideas to help us evolve. We introduce you to people who are positively transforming lives, leaders of movements, or everyday heroes who are making change. Good change. Good change highlights the common ground we share, the unlimited positive impact of a single person, and the greater good. Welcome to Good Change, a podcast about making a world of difference. Please welcome your host and good change maker, Ken Streeter. Hello, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Good Change podcast. And today we're honored and I'm stoked to use River uh, Runner parlance to have Darcy Gector as our guest. Darcy is an international kayaker non-parallel. She's run some of the hardest stretches of rivers on earth, and that includes the Amazon River, which she ran from the headwaters to the sea, becoming the first woman to ever do that. The Amazon is the largest river on earth. Darcy, we're super, super happy to have you on the show, and uh, I understand you're in our neck of the woods in Oregon getting ready to run another classic river. That's right. Yeah, thanks for having me here. I'm super excited to chat with you today, and uh, after we're done talking, I'm headed off to the Illinois River. Beautiful. So Darcy recently published a book called Amazon Woman that chronicles her adventures on the Amazon. And there's one section in here, if you don't mind me starting with this, that I'd love to read because it really, I think, expresses just how perilous it can be to be a kayaker. And in this case, obviously running the Amazon from the headwaters to these to the sea. But uh, Darcy writes about what it's like to swim a rapid, and swim is definitely uh, simplifies it. It's more like what it like what's it, what it's like to survive an exhausting experience in the water. And she talks about the currents pulling each limb in different directions, and how you feel the strength of the river. And then she says, "You feel like a starfish." careening uncontrollably toward oblivion. What a great expression. Tell us a little bit more about what that feels like to be in a rapid and out of your boat. Yeah, when I wrote that, you know, when you, when I talk to my parents or other friends that aren't kayakers and try to explain like what swimming is, I think they just have an idea of like swimming laps in a pool or, you know, a nice swim at the beach. And so I was really trying to convey what it felt like when you're, you know, swimming. And I've heard people say like, it's like being in a washing machine and stuff like that. And those are all awesome descriptors, but it's really a lot more than that. You know, when you're getting sucked under the water and no matter what you do, you just can't counteract the power of the river. You know, you're just totally at the mercy of it, getting trundled around on the bottom or swirled around and just hoping that the river will let you up for a breath of air before, uh, before it's too late, before you really need one. And I'm guessing you've experienced that many, many times, which enables you to write such an accurate description. Yes, unfortunately, I do have a lot of experience with it. Um, less so as I got better at kayaking. But my first year of kayaking, uh, I was with a group of people that were very willing to let me tag along with them, but not that interested in teaching me any real kayaking skills. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know how to do the combat role, you know, which is to rewrite your kayak once you've accidentally capsized. I didn't know how to do that for like the first year of my kayaking career, which meant that anytime I tipped over, I was swimming out of my kayak. And luckily it was not in that heart of whitewater back then, but uh, I did my fair share of swimming for sure. Well, we're glad you're on dry land with us today. And, and I'm, I'm confident that your next river trip down the Illinois, which for folks who don't know is one of the nicest rivers, one of the most spectacularly pretty rivers on earth. And uh, I'm excited that you're in Oregon in our neck of the woods and, uh, uh, have fun on this trip, stay in your boat. Five months, you were on the river for five months on the Amazon. I mean, most people, when they pack for a vacation, they're packing for a week or two. 
and you have to carry stuff. There's some stories about your food being resupplied, but you have to carry stuff for a five month trip in a kayak. How much time did it take preparing for this trip? Yeah, I mean, the, the logistical challenges of the Amazon were definitely huge. And, you know, we did a lot of preparation beforehand, you know, uh, months and months for David Midgley, the guy who thought of the expedition, his preparation took a decade um, for the whole team. It was, you know, eight months of prep. But even after all that, you know, every night at camp, pretty much, we had to get out the satellite phone and continue doing logistics because, yeah, you just can't carry five months worth of gear in your boat. So we did a lot of, um, you know, food drops, like getting people to drive little boxes of food into various access points for us. We shipped bags and the sea kayaks actually to the beginning of the flat water. So we had um, whitewater kayaks for the first month of the expedition and then sea kayaks for the last four months. So we had to arrange getting that stuff transported to a tiny town called Puerto Ene that has like maybe four or 500 residents. And mm. yeah, it was really just mind boggling making all the pieces come together, but um, we did a pretty good job of it because we didn't have any logistical snafus on the trip. So it worked out pretty well. Right on And, and you, you've talked about the whitewater and about the gear. And I read your book and it, it's a page turner, folks, listeners and viewers, it's a page turner. I've read a lot of books about adventures and Darcy, yours is, yours is one of the best. It's one that it's hard to put down. Good to hear. Thank you. Means a lot and, coming from you, Ken. Oh, well, thank you. The, uh, you talked about the whitewater, you talked about the gear. Uh, share a little bit more with us about some of the completely treacherous non-river related issues that you were faced with as you're laying in your tent uh, the night before you're getting ready to start on this trickle up at the headwaters. But there's, there's all kinds of things that are maybe equally, if not more dangerous than just the whitewater and, and the logistics. Yeah, that's true. So various challenges we faced, you know, the first night, maybe what you're referring to, it was extremely cold. We were at 15,000 feet in elevation and like our water bottles froze solid. And, you know, we, we had some cold weather gear, but we were much more prepared for hot weather down in the lower river. So we were quite cold at the beginning, but that didn't last long. Soon enough, we were quite hot again. And we had uh, bugs attacking us. We, the weirdest thing that happened to us, which was totally unexpected, um, we were taking doxycycline as a malarial preventative and uh, there are other options, but doxycycline was the cheapest, which we liked and seemed the best for taking long-term, but it gives you a, a heightened sensitivity to the sun and talking with the doctors, they're like, oh, you'll be fine. Just put on more sunscreen, but maybe they didn't truly grasp that we would be in the sun every waking hour that it was up. And, uh, from paddling with our fingernails facing towards the water, I think the UV rays were reflecting off the water and all of our fingernails got irradiated and started like disconnecting from our hands. And, uh, you know, it took us a long time to figure out what was going on. And it happened to me and Midge first, and then Dawn started getting it too. And it was excruciatingly painful. And that was uh, something we did not anticipate for sure. And then there's, dams being built and rebels in the woods. Tell us a little bit about that. So the dam, uh, yeah, they're building a new dam on the Montaro River, which is the tributary that we descended. And we had talked to the construction managers before we went and got them to agree to stop their dynamite work while we paddled through. But it was still uh, a very harrowing experience and one that I think we survived um, half because of our caution and skills and half just purely because of luck. Because we were at the bottom of a, you know, depending where we were, 500 to 2000 foot deep canyon and they're building a road down in it. So they just had done tons of dynamite work, which meant that the riverbed was extremely um, unnatural. So in places there was like uh, mobile home size rocks in the river and all the water went underneath them. So we had to portage around those sections. But when we were portaging, the banks were just like a big unstable landslide on both sides. And so we really felt like, you know, run across this landslide so that we didn't start it in motion again and get swept into the river. And uh, yeah, it, it was only 
I think a three mile section, but it took us five hours or something to get through the whole thing. And it was the most stressful day of kayaking in my life for sure. Mm. We made it. And then, yeah, then uh, after the whitewater, we got to the flatwater section, which is also the beginning of a area that Peru calls the red zone. And it's just sort of a dangerous area because in the 1980s and the 1990s, Peru had, you know, what they now call the civil war, but there was shining path insurgents. And um, yeah, it's kind of a strange movement because the shining path started out as sort of an uprising of the poor. It had some Maoist roots and they wanted to overthrow the wealthy government and bring power to the poor people. But it very quickly changed directions and uh, poor people like indigenous in Peru's highlands and then indigenous, the Ashanika people along the river where we were, ended up being the biggest victims of the Shining Path movement. And the Ashanika in the red zone, they lost like 30,000 people due to this conflict. And that was about a third of their population. And this was again in the 1980s and 1990s. So it's like still very fresh in people's memories. Now, um, there's still some Shining Path insurgents, but it's it's much smaller. And those people mostly work for the drug trade. So the red zone is like the world's number one cocaine producing region in the world now. And there's a ton of illegal logging. And so like all these forces combine to make it quite dangerous. And, uh, you know, we ended up having nothing but really good experiences while we were there. But in the two years leading up to our expedition, like six tourists that we knew of had passed through there and two of them were murdered and one more guy was shot, but he uh, luckily survived. And so it was a very stressful, like it, these weren't good odds, obviously. We're yeah, in here. Yeah. And so, you know, we did what we could. We got permission letters from, there's like some overriding bodies for the, the Ashanika people. We got permission letters from their president. We got, we had a Ashanika guy come along with us in a motorized canoe. He'd just follow along. And then he could help. Like we all spoke Spanish, but it was our second language and it was the Ashanika second language. So this guy could help uh, smooth over any uncomfortable situations. And then uh, we were in the red zone like three weeks total. And the, the military and the police don't have much of a presence in the upper part, but the last week we had a escort from the Peruvian Navy. So I'm sure that helped our chances as well. So yeah, it worked out fine, but it was um, a stressful three weeks. I can't imagine because just because of the unknown for what you're entering, but also because of the known, which is the, the history of those six tourists over the previous two years. So that it's, it's one thing to face whitewater and it's another thing to face the unknown of, of rebels who have been known to kill their own or kill people that they just don't agree with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whitewater risks, you know, that was something we were all familiar with and, you know, the rivers act the same in, you know, whatever country you're in. So we understood those forces, but yeah, having, humans be the threat was definitely something that I wasn't used to and nor was I very comfortable with. But, you know, as we, I, my comfort level increased as we went through the red zone, because as we pulled over and, and talked to more people and understood, you know, their fears, they're trying to protect themselves basically. And it kind of, because tourism isn't really much of a thing in this area, any people that come into the region are typically want to, cut down their trees illegally or or participate in the drug trade and even now like Peruvian government officials are going in there looking for dam sites so kind of any outsiders don't really uh, bring good things we'll say that but you know once they knew what we were doing and once we understood what they were afraid of like it was a much more uh, reasonable situation once we all started talking and understood each other a little bit. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting comment. This, this podcast is, among other things, designed to help people find common ground to, to um, realize greater good. And, and what you're describing is a universal characteristic, which is people being afraid for their life, basically, and not, not necessarily in terms of mortality, but the quality of their life, just their existence. And my guess is that in the course of your travels that you've experienced a whole lot of different cultures. And, and is, is that a common thread that people just want to be able to enjoy their life and feel comfortable and safe? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, we all, 
we all want our basic needs met. You know, we want food, shelter, safety, and of course, enjoyment on top of that. And yeah, I mean, it's totally understandable that anything that might seem to present a threat to any of that is scary and you want to take care of it, obviously. And we all, you know, we all have that instinct for sure. And, and what gets in the way of people forgetting that? What gets in the way of people um, not remembering that common thread? And, you know, there's example after example of, of how that's manifested negatively. And one is in our country where we've got this political strife that's led to uh, daily uh, 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 fights among groups of people. So why is it that people forget and don't have as at their forefront of thinking that we all have that, that same thread, those same basic desires? I think we all get too caught up in worrying about ourselves and uh, looking out for our own needs, you know, which is on a basic level, I guess what we're supposed to do, but it's when you get really self-involved, it's easy to forget that everybody else is going through essentially the same struggle. And it's easy, you know, like our, our trip into the Amazon is a good example. You know, we had read a lot about the dangers of this area. Um, some people that had been in there previous to us told all these stories and everything we read and heard made the Ashanika people look quite bad you know they made them out to be these murderous indigenous people that should be feared and they're not reasonable and if we didn't if we just uh, took all that at face value and didn't make an effort to talk to the people down there it would have been really easy for us to just fall into that same mentality like these are bad people they're murderers and we don't want anything to do with them but you know, because we were able to go talk to them, it's like, no, they're not bad people. They are people whose the government, the police, the military have pretty much ignored. They don't get any help for their own protection, their land rights, they're, you know, preserving their way of life. And so they're just trying to protect themselves. But they're good people. They care about their kids. They care about family. And, you know, they were extremely nice to us again once they realized, oh, you guys are kayaking, you're just passing through, this is a cool adventure. And so, yeah, again, it would have been easy to just ignore their motivations, their fears, their desires, and told, you know, our own story, our own myth of what we had uh, gathered from listening to stories of these people. And I think the exact same thing happens in the U.S. You know, I don't, I don't want to go seek out someone with opposite political views because it's uncomfortable it's hard are we going to fight what's going to happen but you know when you do end up talking to people we might have different political views but there's a lot of common ground somewhere too you just have to find it which can be hard so, yeah but maybe rule number one is exactly what you did was you know at least to some degree heed some of the concerns but don't make it your be-all end-all decision-making pyramid and and instead listen to people, talk to people, get to know them. And, and applying that in this country or on the shores of the Amazon turn out to make a big difference in terms of building common ground. Yeah, exactly. You know, find out why people feel the way they feel, why they act mm. the way they act. And sometimes that's not possible. And obviously you have to take your own safety into account. But whenever it is possible, I think, you know, extending your hand, listening, those things really go a long way if you can do it. So you talk a little bit about why you wrote this book, why you did this trip. And, and part of it is, uh, speaking of groups of people, is to inspire young women or women to do things like you have done and to encapsulate it into kind of simple, broad terms. It's to live your dreams. And, and have you had good feedback from people who um, either aren't adventurous or who are women wanting to do more with their lives uh, that, that you've brought a, a sense of possibility, a greater possibility to them? Yeah, I've actually had um, a really, really good feedback from women really of all ages, but particularly uh, teenage and like young 20 year old women, actually, and men, you know, both sides of the spectrum. And yeah, my goal with the book is, you know, a lot of times when I was growing up, I wanted to do things that weren't normal for girls or for women to do and 
you know, feeling like, you know, what's wrong with me? Why am I so weird? Why can't I just do these things that I'm supposed to be doing according to the feedback I'm getting from society? And, you know, I feel very lucky that I didn't um, change my life too much to, to fit the mold, but I wanted to be a good example for other people that might be feeling how I was feeling as a kid. So they can say, no, I want to just keep on doing what I'm doing regardless of whatever feedback I might be getting from the world. I'm just going to push forward and follow what I want to do. And, and obviously that's paid off in a variety of ways, which is being able to see the world and experiencing indigenous cultures left and right. And, and now you've got the opportunity, given the popularity of the book and the fact that your story is becoming more and more known, to, to reach an even broader audience than what you may have reached in the past, which is the river running community. And if you had one simple piece of advice for a 14-year-old girl, my daughter, my, you know, after this podcast, I'm going to watch my 14-year-old daughter participate in their first gymnastics exhibition in a year because of COVID. And I would love to share with her what you think is an important pearl of wisdom for somebody that wants to pursue a dream and may feel like they've been told by others not to do that. Well, yeah. So I think all of us, um, boys, girls, men, women, um, we hear and are affected by the noise of the world. And, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, when we're really young kids, we may not realize that there are any barriers to what we want to do, but we pretty quickly learn, you know, like, this is what a firefighter looks like. This is what a flute player looks like. This is what a CEO looks like. And we learn all these things. And this kind of gets imprinted on our, you know, on our minds, on our souls, what we think we want to do. But all of us have some kind of passion in us somewhere. And if we can just have the courage to tune out the noise of the world and follow what we want to do, it really will pay off in the long run because the people that I know who have turned, you know, turned down the volume on their own passion to do what they feel like they're supposed to do. And some people feel pressure from their parents, some from society, some it's just pressure they put on themselves, but they, they might be successful in the sense that they have a lot of money or a nice house, or they moved up the career ladder but there's some kind of fire missing from them. And people often realize that late in life, you know, like finally at age 50, I'm going to quit this job and I'm going to follow whatever my dream was to bike across the world, to become a painter, to, you know, work at an animal shelter, whatever it might be. People do eventually have these realizations, but when you're young, I mean, any time is fine, but especially when you're young, if you can just, um, yeah, shut out the noise of the world and follow what you want to do and trust that it will lead you somewhere good. And, you know, my example, my thing was kayaking, like in my early twenties, that's what I got super passionate about. And I did just dive in and follow it, even though, you know, people were like, what kind of a career is kayak guiding? You're never going to have any money. You're going to be insecure uh, financially your whole life. Uh, you know, don't you want more, you know, all this stuff that I was hearing. And, um, you know, I started to think it too, like, oh, what good is kayaking going to do me? I get to see cool places. I get to have experiences, but you know, what does that really mean in the larger scheme of things? But because I followed that passion and because I dove in head first, I had the skills and, and was in the right place and the right mindset to be able to do something like the Amazon. And then the Amazon led me to, you know, feel like I had something worthy of writing a book about. So I wrote the book and that was like a whole different challenge and diversion in my career. And now I'm doing podcasts. Now I work for a speakers bureau doing motivational speaking. And so something as uh, silly and uh, meaningless as kayaking has brought me to all these really incredible places. And so people just have to trust that whatever their passion is, that it will also bring them to good places if they are, you know, if they follow it, if they're dedicated, if they don't mind being for being in it for the long haul. And I will oh, say yeah. I had been kayaking uh, 16 years before the Amazon. So it's going to take time. <laughs> Yeah. So what you're saying is, it's important to follow your passion, but to, to be able to 
take it to a level where it may make a significant difference in your life or somebody else's life that it, it could take some work, like 16 years of kayaking around the world before you took on the big one. Right, exactly. And yeah, so you can't, you have to be patient and, you know, it, it's, it is a tricky thing, but you hear so often that, you know, if you, if there's something in you that really feels right and you're happy to dedicate a ton of energy to it, that's what you should follow because it's going to, you know, it might not lead you to the places you expect, but wherever it leads you, I think it will give you a feeling of contentment and fulfillment that you won't find if you're putting all your energy into something that you're not passionate about. Yeah, right on. So we, we when we talked a week or so ago in preparation for this conversation, uh, the, the phrase passion produces purpose came out of that conversation. And, and tell us a little bit about now how your passion for kayaking, obviously it led to the writing of this fantastic book. Um, but tell us a little bit about how your passion has uh, emboldened you or enabled you to create a, a purposeful life in areas outside of writing a book or in addition to writing a book or, or um, kayaking beautiful rivers. Yeah, well, I talk about this a little bit in the book, but, you know, early on in my kayaking career, um, well, I, I've always been a very shy person. So that's another sort of surprising thing about doing these podcasts. I never could have mm -hmm. imagined doing it 10 years ago, but I've always been very shy. I've always felt like, you know, why would the really good kayakers want to kayak with me? Or why would anybody want to hear my story? You know, just really feeling like, you know, what do I have to contribute to anyone else out there? And, but, you know, I still kept sticking with kayaking because that's what I, that's what I love to do. And, you know, really through writing this book and connecting with more people, you know, you realize, I realize that lots of other people feel that way too. Lots of other people struggle with finding their place in the world, finding their passion. How do I follow it? And realizing that, you know, there's 7 billion of us or whatever there are on the planet, like whatever struggles we're going through, we're not alone. There's other people that are going through it too. And, you know, making that connection and realizing that I could potentially be a role model for people who are going through similar struggles or that maybe just people can relate to my story on even a very tiny level. And it might give them a little bit of inspiration they need to shove aside uh, some of the some of the feedback from the world they're getting and just do what they want to do has been um, probably the most rewarding part of the process for me. I think awesome. I got a little sidetracked from your original question, but <laughs> no, that's actually that that's a great answer. I asked about purpose and one of the purposes that you've discovered from inside the cockpit of a plastic boat going down a river is that you can uh, impact other people. And obviously there's a huge evolution from sitting in the cockpit of a plastic boat to writing a book. But in that entire process, you came to realize that one of your purposes is to impact other people, uh, even as an introvert who never imagined this happening. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and, you know, I think, um, the book writing process for me took six and a half years from starting to write to publication. And when I started writing the book, like I had no idea what a literary agent was, um, what a book proposal was, a query letter, any of that stuff. And so it was a very intimidating uh, and difficult learning curve. But I do think, you know, the years of kayaking, you know, kayaking at the beginning for me was a huge struggle and I sucked at it. And, um, you know, I had to stick with that and work through tons of stuff. But all that training kind of gave me, I think, the mental fortitude to persevere through the book writing process, which has been my, you know, avenue towards creating the best change that I think I can in this world. So. And you've done other things too. You've, you're, you own a, a company that does um, kayak guided kayaking trips or escorted trips in Ecuador. I want to hear a little bit about that. And then you've taken on some fairly significant environmental issues. And so in addition to being a mentor, in addition to sharing information, inspiration that can inspire other people, there are other tangible things that you've done as a result of your passion turning into purpose. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, a woman owning a, a adventure travel company. And, and folks, I owned an adventure travel company for a number of years. And I can tell you that uh, it took a long time, decades 
for it to be uh, okay for a woman to be a, a river guide in this case, in my case, with uh, uh, my coming up through the guide ranks in the 80s. And then, of course, by extension, it also is very rare for a woman to own an adventure travel company. So talk a little bit about owning uh, your, your uh, kayaking guiding business and then also a little bit about your environmental pursuits. All right. Yeah. So I own Small World Adventures and our main thing is running uh, week-long kayaking trips in Ecuador during the North American winter. But we also do uh, some domestic trips like uh, we're leading a, two trips on the Illinois River this spring. We do Middle Fork Salmon. We do Grand Canyon. And I, um, I did not start the company. A guy named Larry Vermeeren started it. And I started working for him in Ecuador in 2001. And then uh, eventually bought into the company. And now Larry is out of the business and Don Beveridge and I own the company together. And, and Don, is, Don is your husband. Yes. Um, unofficially, but yes. <laughs> Okay. We've been together uh, 18 years, but we're not officially married. Um, and so it was, I guess, to back up a little bit too, I started raft guiding right after I graduated high school. And I, uh, it might be hard to tell here, I'm 5'4 and like 125 pounds, which is kind of big for me now. I was even smaller back then. And so not only was I a woman when there weren't that many women um, raft guides, but also I was a particularly small woman. So those things um, created some challenges for me. Again, I was very, very determined and determined to prove to everyone and including myself that I could do this. But it was very hard because in the first few years, like quite often at the put in for a raft trip, I would overhear like some dad pull one of the male guides aside and say, please don't stick my family with that little girl. I just don't think it's going to be safe, you know, or some version of that. And I heard that quite a lot. And, you know, what it did for me was just really piss me off and uh, mm. sort of make the chip on my shoulder even bigger and make me feel like I had to prove to the world that I could do this. And then uh, when I moved into kayak guiding, um, the same kind of things happened, not, not nearly as much as in raft guiding, but the same kind of things happened. And then when I started to own the business, especially in Ecuador, where there is a, even a bit more of a machismo culture than here, there was plenty of challenges with uh, getting the respect that I felt I deserved, you know, from sometimes from employees, sometimes from uh, guests, you know, depending on the situation. But all of it, again, you know, just really made me want to sort of put my head down, work harder and show everyone that that this was possible. And and now it's been 20 years and it's still still going fairly well. So I, I think I proved that it was possible, I guess. <laughs> right on. And then the, the environmental stuff, um, you know, it's something I think our school as kids did a good job of uh, instilling some environmental consciousness into us. And we had to do fundraisers to like save the whales and do stuff like that as little kids. But it's always been something I've been passionate about and uh, living and working in Ecuador um, and on the rivers. It's uh you know, it's really sad to see the destruction of mining, of dams, of all that stuff. And so for a long time, I've been working quite closely with the Ecuadorian Rivers Institute. Uh, I'm on their board of directors and I'm like their main fundraiser. Mm. And uh, it is, it's quite challenging. You know, Ecuador actually has a number of really good laws in place to protect nature. And uh, the rights of nature are constitutionally protected in Ecuador. But the challenge for the Ecuadorian Rivers Institute is trying to force uh, the government to uphold these laws. And so a lot of what the conservation work in Ecuador entails is filing lawsuits when the government, you know, hands out <clears throat> like dam, uh, dam, pro dam uh, permitting, I guess, without an environmental impact statement, without uh, prior and informed consent with the indigenous communities that live there. And so, yeah, a lot of our work is filing lawsuits to make sure they uphold their laws, go through the processes they're supposed to, and obviously lawyers and that kind of thing cost a lot of money. So my main job is looking for funds. If anyone is listening and wants to donate, check out EcuadorianRivers.org and you can donate right there on their website. And, and we're going to put a link to that at the bottom of our show notes for this podcast so people will be able to link directly to it. And that's a great cause. 
And um, it, it, what, it, what you're describing is a, a dedication, a mentality to making a difference. Uh, this podcast is largely about making a world of difference. And each guest like yourself uh, has illustrated that in these beautiful, beautiful and diverse ways. And, and one person that I think uh, embodies uh, grabbing on to a dream that may make no sense whatsoever and then turning it into a goal and, and by extension now changing the world is uh, uh, the third person on the kayaking trip. It was you and Don, and then a guy that is nicknamed Midge. And I'd love to hear a little bit about your perspective on what I take away from the book. I call it the Midge mentality. Tell us a little bit about Midge and, and how each one of us can learn from what, what he did. Yeah, um, Midge is an awesome and interesting character and can teach us all a lot about determination. So he is a brilliant computer programmer. He lives in London and uh, amongst his many accomplishments, he was one of the people that wrote the algorithm, which we probably all actually find really annoying. But it's like, uh, you know, when you're writing an email in Gmail and you say, you know, hey, do you want to go running tomorrow? And then you start seeing all these ads for running shoes pop oh, up. Yeah. So he wrote the algorithm that makes that all possible. And, uh, but he was sort of having like a midlife crisis in his early 30s. And he was worried that <clears throat> he was going to spend his entire life sitting behind a computer writing code. And he was kind of okay with that because that this was his passion, you know, he really truly loved it. But he he thought to himself, like, I want to have one big adventure in my life so that I can feel a little bit more well-rounded, I guess. And so he uh, you know, he thought about climbing Everest, but he's like, no, that too many people have done it, it's too, too easy. He thought about sailing around the world, and then he it's like very statistically driven person. He read the statistic that more people had walked on the moon than had descended the Amazon River from source to sea. And then he dug a little deeper and he found out that nobody had actually kayaked the Amazon from source to sea. So of the nine, well, at the time, only five people had done it mm. and they had um, hiked around or rafted through the whitewater. So they hadn't kayaked the whole thing. So he decided that that is what he would do. And he was with his brother in a bar in Scotland and he was quite drunk and he wrote it down on a napkin and his brother told him he was full of, I don't know, can I say shit on the show? Yeah, Scottish shit. You can even say that. <laughs> full of shit and that he would never do it. And I think that actually was pretty helpful in giving Midge that extra layer of determination that he needed. But the important part of this story is Midge uh, did not know how to kayak at this time and he had never gone kayaking in his life. He had never gone camping in his life and he really was an unathletic computer programmer with no skills that would help him do this. So that's why his journey took 10 years because he did more research. He found out there was class five whitewater in the headwaters of the Amazon. And so he became determined to become a good enough kayaker. and. The fact that he did is kind of amazing in itself because of, you know, of all the kayakers in the world, you know, what is it like somewhere between one and 4% that can kayak class five whitewater. And, and let me interrupt here for just a second. Class five whitewater is the hardest runnable whitewater level. There is flat water like the Mississippi river and the Mississippi river Delta is class one. And then you climb the ladder to class five, which is the hardest you can run raft or kayak. And then class six is considered completely unrunnable because it's too risky. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Sorry. I didn't think to explain. But, mm -hmm. um, and then on top of just running class five rapids, this sort of situation what we call like class five expedition paddling. So it's an unknown river to us, you know, so one, one person had run the whole thing before we got there, but we didn't know where we were going. So that meant anytime there was a hard rapid or a canyon, we'd have to get out, you know, walk along the bank and scout if we could, and just generally figure things out. And um, yeah, so it's totally amazing that Midge was able to get to this level of kayaking because most people who pursue kayaking as a passion can't get there. And Midge um, wasn't really that passionate about kayaking. He, he came to Ecuador to train with us. That's how we met Midge because he started coming to small world adventures to train with us every year. And he kept telling us, 
I'm only doing this for the Amazon. I'm going to quit kayaking as soon as I accomplish the goal. And we're like, oh, come on. You must like it a little bit now. And he's like, nope. And to my knowledge, he's gone kayaking once since the Amazon. And that was because his wife forced him to do it. And that, that's the only time. So he really did this just, you know, as a means to an end of accomplishing his goal. And um, through, yeah, yeah he beat amazing odds that he did this trip and it still, you know, I've never met anyone before or since that has come up with such an outlandish goal and had the perseverance to actually see it through. I mean, how many of us can say that we could spend a decade working on something that we didn't really like that much to do that. And uh, yeah, it's pretty incredible what he accomplished. and then to, after realizing that goal, recognizing that there were other things in life that uh, having done that now mattered more to him and he doesn't care to go kayaking. What a, what a remarkable human. And, and you described a lot of the challenges that he went through to get there, like learning how to kayak, to be able to kayak the entire Amazon River. And in your book, there's a line about horizon lines. And I'll, I'll share with uh, the, re- the viewers and listeners a little bit about horizon lines. So when you're going down a, a river for the first time, a first descent of a river, and I've only done this a couple of times, I'm not in Darcy's category whatsoever. But when you come to an edge of the river, literally an edge of the river that often the distance disappears, and you might hear sounds like a roaring freight train, and you might see mist appearing from below this ledge, this horizon line, that signals that you need to pull over generally and try to figure out what lies ahead. And I want to use the metaphor of the horizon line for a second here. And and I'd love for you to share with the, the people that are listening or watching this, what they should do in their pursuit, in their passionate pursuit of something like running the Amazon or starting an adventure travel company or becoming a, an environmental advocate, what should they do when they come to a horizon line in order to move forward, to keep going? Yeah, to overcome these obstacles that we're all going to face. You know, the number one thing I think is to start from a position of understanding that there will be numerous horizon lines. You know, I think Mm -hmm. I'm definitely guilty of this. When I set off for something, I often, in my mind, assume it will all be smooth sailing. And so that when problems do come up, I can easily get flustered because it's like, oh, this wasn't part of the plan. But Mm -hmm. if I go into something assuming that things aren't going to go as planned, because we all know that in life, um, things rarely go exactly as we plan them. So starting from a point of understanding and recognizing that, I think we'll do wonders for your mental outlook when you are uh, taking on these challenges. And then for me, you know, I've kind of developed, I wasn't always good at, at dealing with problems, but that's something that kayaking, uh, running a business in South America, kind of everything about my life has taught me is that, you know, there is a true art and it can be fun to figure out problems when they do arise. And so treating it more as like, treating it not as like, oh man, everything's going wrong. This is just messing up my plan, but more as like, all right, I expected this obstacle to show up. Now, how am I going to tackle it and get around it? But I like to do a few things. You know, the first thing I do, something goes wrong is just like take a couple deep breaths because it's amazing how much that can slow your brain down. I think a lot of us can fall into that trap of like, not panic mode isn't the right word, but like, oh my God, things are going wrong and freaking out and super fast thinking, which isn't always what you need. So a couple deep breaths, like slow down. Okay, what is the problem here? Because we can also, I think, pretty easily um, focus on something that's not the real problem, figure out what the real, what the real problem is, what horizon line you're actually looking at. And then um, start thinking of solutions to the problem and fix, pick the best one. And, you know, depending on what you're facing, that process might take 10 seconds or it might take weeks, you know, if it's a big problem. But you just have to believe in yourself that you'll figure it out. You'll figure something out and sort of work, work through it without, uh, without panicking, without playing the victim card, you know, like, why does everything always go wrong? Because everything always goes wrong for everybody. So Mm. we'll just accept that and deal with it. So a pearl of wisdom in that was um, put the victim card back on the, in the deck, get rid of the victim card. And it's so easy for people to 
to not do that. And, and so is there, is there an actual thought that you have when the victim card is in your face and you're thinking that it may be an insurmountable or far more difficult horizon line than it really is? You know, I um, read a book by Ryan Holiday somewhat recently, and he has this awesome quote. Um, his book is called The Obstacle is the Way. And he has this awesome quote that says, this is going to suck, but I know I'll get through it. And I think that's, that's just a great little mantra, you know, and it's uh, also realizing, I think it's easy for us to look at our own problems and feel like they're huge in comparison to other people's or why does all this bad stuff happen to me, but really acknowledging that probably that's how everybody feels. Everybody has hiccups and problems and huge obstacles in their lives. And just, yeah, that feeling like, I'll get through this, you know, trusting that you will. And you might not get through it how you think you were going to, but you will get through it somehow. And just believing mm. that I think is super helpful for me. And how did that apply? We talked a little bit before we came on air about the book writing process. And you said it took six years for you to write the book. And so how did that apply when it came to periods in authorship uh, that you begin to wonder what this was all about? Yeah, I mean, so the process, the writing process was uh, one set of challenges. And then, you know, finding a literary agent was a whole nother one. And, you know, just getting like tons of rejection letters, you know, they're just stack up super high. But, you know, for me, I, there was many points where I was like, okay, nobody wants a, a book from a first time author. This is sort of a weird adventure memoir what category does it even fall in maybe traditional publishing is not the right path for me but I was pretty lucky in that often in those low moments like I would just meet someone who said no you know keep trying someone this is a good story someone will want it and that was really helpful and then I did eventually get a, a literary agent and I thought oh the work is done yay but then you know 40 re rejection letters from publishers and back to the same kind of feeling like, okay, I got an agent, but maybe she's wrong. Maybe this isn't for a traditional publishing house, but, you know, look for those people in your life that will give you that little nugget of encouragement when you are at your lowest moments. And, and again, it took a lot from when I got the agent to publishing was like two years. So it was, uh, you know, just a really long process and it was really easy. It would have been really easy to give up and say, forget it. This is so much work. But I just kept having this image of my book on the bookshelf, like at, mm. at a real bookstore. And I loved that. And so that like those sorts of things kept me going. And, uh, you know, you got to go through a lot of low times, but just figure out how to keep going. You know, there's, there's three things, there's a, a two dozen things that have stood out to me in this conversation, but there's three things. One that you've, that you've said, one is find the common humanity in other people and, and just get to know them. Two is don't turn down the volume on your passion. I loved it when you said that. And then this third thing was find people in your life that will support you in your dreams, no matter how crazy or hard they may seem. And mm -hmm. that, that leads me to think that maybe perseverance breeds serendipity. Have you found that in your life? Yeah, I absolutely think that's true. I absolutely do. And so you have to work obviously at, at building a network that inspires you and encourages you. But my guess is that as you work hard to achieve that sometimes things like those people magically just appear in your life. Yeah. And they, they are super important because I think, you know, especially if you have a dream or a goal that's quite a bit against the grain, you'll readily find people that say, you know, don't do that. Uh, you know, waste of your time. It's a risky move. And those people are pretty easy to come by. And sometimes you have to look harder for the people that are like, oh, that is a great idea, you know, keep going at it. But those people are very important because I don't know that I think those of us that maybe are a little bit more insecure when you are trying to do something against the grain, it's really easy to start thinking like, yeah, all these people are right. This is a dumb idea. Why am I trying to do something when everybody else is saying it's stupid or it's not possible or it shouldn't 
or I shouldn't do it. And it's really easy to just agree with them and move on with the next thing in your life. But if it's something that you really want, it's going to be very important to seek out. It might be, you might even only need one person that backs you up and says, you can do this, or this is a cool idea, you know, whatever, whatever you need at that moment. Hmm. So have you found, and so the part of the, the goal or a goal of this show is to inspire people to do good things, to create good change in order to have an impact in their community. And community doesn't necessarily have to be a town. It could be a, a river runner community or a, or a business community. Have you found that by increasing your passion, following your dreams, that you have increased your impact in ways that are truly making a difference in the world. And, and I know it might be easy to dismiss that through trying to be humble, but is, is that something that uh, you think people should aspire to just because of the, the, the geometric impact that you might have on, on others? I do think so. And I think, you know, again, the, it can be sort of daunting to think about, well, I want to make a difference in this world, but that's impossible. The world's so big. There's so many people. But I mean, I think it's important to understand that even if you just make a difference in a few people's life, that is making a difference in the world. And, you know, you never know what those people will go on to do and, and to who they might influence and so on. And uh, yep. yeah, you know, it's... Uh, Again, if you if we had this conversation five years ago, I would have said, well, I don't have anything to offer the world. You know, what are people going to learn from me? And so, but I stuck with this whole process long enough to realize I, I do have something to offer some people in this world. And I'm very grateful that I was able to get a publisher, that I was able to stick with the book, because I think so far that's been my best avenue for... Uh, for reaching people, I guess. And not just in the kayaking community, but kind of anyone that uh, wants to follow their dreams or is having a hard time following their dreams and just needs that extra little bit of encouragement. So you're, you're uh, sitting around a campfire on the edge of a beautiful river. Maybe, maybe it's a class five river and you've, you've got a chance to just breathe and, and enjoy the stars at night at camp. And you're with five or six or seven or eight or just a handful of uh, people that you really like that you've loved being with for this trip and that you've loved having in your life for a number of years and you're sitting around the campfire and there's a uh, everybody is taking turns uh, answering this question and i'd love to hear where uh, you would go with this answer looking back what is it that has most mattered to me Hmm, that's a tough one. Yeah, so what has most mattered to me? You know, I, again, I talk about in the book that I went through a time in my kayaking career where I felt uh, not a very uh, good, I didn't feel very comfortable with my place in society. And mm -hmm. all of my friends, uh, were going in different directions than I was. And I didn't understand how I could fit in with them. Uh, I didn't quite fit in with the kayaking community as much anymore because I was a bit older than most of the people that were still running class five. And I really sort of retreated into myself, into the rivers and started looking at them as an escape, so, you know, escaping society, escaping these hard conversations or these hard thought processes of what, what I was doing with my life. And, uh, as I slowly emerged from that, you know, I did realize, you know, at that time, running rivers was the most important thing in my life. And I had this big list of rivers that I wanted to run and, you know, just checking them off was all that mattered to me. But as I emerged from that, that place, I realized that, you know, kayaking hasn't really been about this list of rivers and I never felt more fulfilled, you know, with each river I ticked off, I was like, yeah, I feel the same. Maybe the next one will bring me that contentment I'm looking for. And it never did. 
But what I found was the relationships with people that I made, the relationships with, with various places, you know, my team in Ecuador, like our cooks, drivers, guides, everyone is such an amazing team and family. And it's really the human connections that are important. And uh, a decade ago, I never would have said that. I thought, I don't need people. I just need my rivers. Mm. But uh, realizing the the true importance of being connected with your community, with fellow humans is a life-changing realization for me. And I'm sure lots of people listening are going to say, well, duh, that's obvious, but it wasn't to me for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right on. You're, uh, you, you talked about the, 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 the indigenous people and, and their needing to do what they have to, to survive and still find enjoyment uh, in their life, what was, maybe this is too hard of a question to answer, but what, among many other things, what were the most enjoyable parts to that trip, to five months on the largest river in the world, facing things from, who knows, uh, murderous rebels to uh, dam construction site landslides to some of the hardest whitewater in the world, weather sun that is making your fingernails disintegrate. I mean, those are crazy things to consider. So what, what is and, and most, a most enjoyable or one of the more enjoyable things that you got out of this trip? Um, probably the thing that popped immediately to mind was um, once we were out of the red zone, we're still in the flat water. Uh, we were camping in villages all the time because there was definitely like a feeling of safety in numbers there. And, you know, we'd be at one village and they'd say, okay, tonight you should try to get to so-and-so place. It's good, safe camping. So we were always in towns or villages. And I started walking around at night and realized that the Peruvian women would always be playing volleyball in the evening. And they were really good at it, like insanely good. I played volleyball in college and I was pretty intimidated watching them. But I finally uh, got up the courage to ask if I could join and they definitely did not want me to because I think they just looked at me and they're like, no way, can this lady play volleyball? But they eventually let me and uh, it was so fun to play volleyball again and to find this connection with the women and it was a cool like very interesting moment because kind of the kids would be crying or fussing, but the women were so focused on the volleyball game. It was like, that was their time of the day. And you could just tell it was this great stress reliever for them. And that they let me be a part of that was, uh, I played in like four matches was all, but it was some of the most special moments on the trip for me. Right on. That's a great story. That's a five foot four white chick coming into an Ecuadorian village saying, Hey, can I play, can I play some volleyball with you? Is uh, it's, it's a great story. And what a, what a remarkable thing to, to have that be one of the more enjoyable moments of that trip. When you consider the, the feeling of success from running some crazy hard rapids to, you know, the salt water and, and reaching the coast, but to have it be, to go back basically to what you just described earlier is discovering what matters to you, which is the human connection, that that was a, a critically important and very enjoyable episode on that trip. Yeah, definitely. We're, uh, we're wrapping this thing up. It's been an absolute absolute treat to get to know you and uh, uh, be able to share your story, your ideas, your advice with, with people that are listening or watching. Is there anything that you'd like to end with uh, in terms of uh, just period? Is there anything you'd like to end with at this point? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, just sort of a quick summary of sort of what I hope to get across is people are always going to judge us, you know, friends, family, and definitely strangers. And, and that's okay, we do it to other people too. I think it's part of human nature that we can't help, but really to just have folks remember to have faith in themselves and whatever their passion or their goal is, remember that it does matter, it is possible, it might be insanely hard and it might suck a lot along the way, but if you really wanna do it, just do it. And who cares what anybody else says? Right on. Darcy Gector, the book is, 
Amazon woman. I've got papers stuck in it that uh, are pages that I go back to and read again, again, and again. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've shared some amazing stories and some great advice, and we're honored to have you on the Good Change Podcast. Yeah, well, thanks for producing such an awesome podcast, and thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Go enjoy the Illinois. I hope you have fun. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Darcy. With every show, we ask our guests to share a video of them doing something fun, one of their favorite songs, a few lines from a book they enjoyed, or a scene from a great movie, something that matches their hopes, dreams, and good work. And then we give this to you, because laughter and beauty soothes, heals, and changes us. You can find and unwrap this gift on any of our social media sites. Thank you for participating in this podcast. Until next time, keep an eye out for change, good change, and join our movement at kenstreeter.com.